if you got $1.5 million and 12, let's just call it 30 tracks, like, do you think you could make a hit? Yes. In case anyone out there is listening and they're looking for an investment opportunity, I can absolutely do that. Attention, Dutch millionaires. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll hit some history, some stats on the artist and album, and do a deep dive on a handful of the tracks. Now, we've got nothing but respect for anyone who's got the guts and dedication to put their ideas on tape, but at the same time, it's fun to complain about the things you love. So we'll probably poke some fun at this album, but at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. I want to thank you all for spending some time with us today, and without sounding too highfalutin, which itself is super pretentious, I want to start out by talking about Great Expectations. Not that terrible Kiss song that we covered a couple <laughs> months ago, but the actual book by Charles Dickens. Literary geeks and 13-year-olds all over the world who were forced to read the Cliff Notes will remember that the main character, Pip, had a mysterious benefactor who funded his escape from the working class in 19th century England and at various points failed to live up to those expectations. Today's band is also from England and also had a benefactor who funded their creation in at least two albums and also failed to live up to expectations. But we'll get to that in a minute. My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years and played professionally for over a decade. And today I'm going to be leading us through the 1974 album Crime of the Century by English progressive rock band Supertramp. So we'll get to our cast introductions in just a minute. But first, let's jump right into the music with a taste of the big single from this album. This is called Dreamer. There you have it. So some context for the conversation that will follow. So let's throw it around the studio and get some introductions by way of that tweet length review. Let's throw it over to Rob first. Thanks, Adam. This is Rob here. And my tweet length review is another 70s prog band falls victim to the scourge of having huge hit songs and subsequently having their early weirdness swept under the rugs of time. (laughs) All right, Phil, what do you got? Yeah, Phil here this week. Excited to be on. Long time Super Tramp fan. And I, I just want to know, how can I get a benefactor? When can I? Get- <laughs> <laughs> it takes a little finagling or a little wangling, which was a, a British slang term I found this week. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> I think you got to start with a time machine to be younger. <laughs> Truth. Yeah, yeah, right. I think at our age, we should start being the benefactors for other people who are in their sure. 20s, right? That won't be creepy at all. No, not <laughs> Especially considering I have no money or experience to offer. 
Well, this is Adam, and my quick tweet was that Millionaire convinces Steely Dan and Pink Floyd to make a baby and wind up creating Proto Toto. Oh, I don't know. Proto Toto is pretty hot. Yes. <laughs> It's funny that Rob, you're right. If you, and for our listeners, if you go out at least on Spotify and you try to find Supertramp's first two albums, they're not there. I had to head over to YouTube to find those first two albums. Like you said, maybe the, some record exec is deliberately trying to sweep it under the rug. I'm not sure. Oh, are they even prog year? Because I was talking about crime of the century. I've been listening to classic rock radio my entire life, so I'm familiar with the Supertramp hits, none of which are on this record. So that's kind of what I was expecting, but turns out they're way less poppy, at least in this era. Even before this, which we'll get into, which they have a really interesting origin story, but they had two prior albums that, yeah, you, you really have a hard time finding. What were those like, Adam? What, what, was, what were those all about? I would equate them to the Grateful Dead early albums. They were a little more of the psychedelic kind of tremolo-y guitar and more just straight ahead rock, a little uh, yeah, jammy. Who's that band we did? The Electric Prunes. Prunes, yeah, the Prunes, yeah. So they may have come out of that, but that was okay. their initial initial iterations. I don't want to get too far into the history before we talk about general impressions. So, Rob, how was your week? It sounds like this was a, maybe a little unexpected. Definitely unexpected. It grew on me. You know, one of the first things I wrote down after listening to about half the record was, this sounds like Adam music. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if i'm off base there it's almost like you know me <laughs> yeah prove me wrong adam right but you know i it was a mishmash in a good way of a lot it was like the 70s in a blender i think we said that about some other records you could hear a lot of other bands in there i heard the pink floyd kind of the david gilmore vocal on money sound i heard sparks if you pretend they went on to have hits this could have been sparks right. You know, it sounded quintessentially British also. But yeah, it was, like I said, it wasn't nearly as poppy as Take the Long Way Home or Give a Little Bit, the songs I knew from Supertramp. And so it was a little bit of a journey, kind of had to grow on me. But ultimately, I liked it, found it pretty groovy. Phil, how about you? How was your week? Well, I mean, my week was great. I love electric piano. I love the Wurlitzer specifically. In fact, our listeners can't see it, but there's a Wurlitzer behind Phil about 10 feet behind him. Yeah, yeah, I really do love those things. And I particularly love this era of recorded music. So, I mean, agnostic of how I actually feel about this record, yeah, I just like things that sound like this, right? I think a lot of things recorded between 68 and 78 sound great. I don't know why that is. Exactly. But I, I think it's one of my preferred eras of recorded music. I enjoyed it. Can I just jump in and say that I don't think it's going to become one of my favorite records. I mean, in the, in the process of listening to this and Googling about it and looking at interviews, people seem to regard this very, very, very highly. And I didn't come away with that impression. But to back up what Phil said, I like when stuff, especially of this era, which I'm already inclined to like, take some chances. That's what this felt like to me. It didn't feel like a total home run of even a prog record to me, but there were definitely some great parts of it, and there's a lot of creativity and a lot of care that went into it. Yeah, this was a new listen for me, too. Very familiar with the big super tramp rock hits of the 70s that we all listened to on, on classic rock radio growing up. But I read a book this week called The Logical Book, which was a compendium of just interviews and reviews from radio and TV shows in England in the 70s and 80s and all throughout their career. So that provided a, a good amount of insight. 
And one of the things that I appreciated was that they said explicitly, this is not a concept album. Despite the fact that you could probably argue from the outside that it is, but they went on to say something like, well, it's however the listener decides to classify it. Can I just pick a quick bone since you mentioned, what was it called? The Logical Book? Yes. One of their big hits is called The Logical Song, right? And another of the big hits is called Breakfast in America. I feel like they're kind of bad at naming song titles, or at least (laughs) they have been held back a little bit by that. Why do you think Breakfast in America is a bad song title? The Logical Song is a terrible song title, so no pushback there. (laughs) I just mean that for you to seek it, I think Breakfast in America is a good song title and a good album title, but it's confusing for what's going to be a single because pulling that line out of the song is not obvious. Mm, Yeah, sure. So I did go in this week and I listened to the prior two albums, like I mentioned, that were available on YouTube. And from album one to album three, it's almost unrecognizable, the the change from that kind of psychedelic, just straight ahead British hard rock to what we hear today. And so, yeah, this is actually the third album by Supertramp, or should I say the name Supertramp, because the band went through a reorg after the first two albums flopped. But let's start back at the beginning and start off with one of the two main creative forces in the band, a guy named Rick Davies. And he's kind of the mastermind and and founder of the band. And so when it comes to our origin story, we're going to focus on him. So he was born in Wiltshire, England in 1944, developed an interest in music at eight years old, and initially started playing the drums. He was given a record player, was gifted a record player, and it came with a album by Gene Krupa. So he started playing drums along to that. I I was just going to ask for an upfront clarification on, is this the high-voiced guy or the low-voiced guy? Because I, I, I think I looked this up several times, but I kept getting confused. They both have quintessentially British names. So Richard Davies is the, I'll call him the Kermit voice. Got it. He does bloody well right. And then Roger Hodgson is the high voice in Dreamer. Okay. That's kind of what I suspected. Because if you look at the arc, I'm sure you're going to get into this. The, the high voiced guy kind of took over the show, it seems like. So in 1959, at age 15, he starts getting into rock and roll. And this is kind of a, a key moment that'll make sense regarding this album in Supertramp is that in 1962, he placed an order for a Honer electric piano called a Pianet. Have you seen these things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually played one. Oh, it's like the little suitcase? Yeah, yeah. Piano? Oh man, it's awesome. Yeah, we used to have one. Somebody that we had shared a rehearsal space with had one and I played it a few times. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. So for, for the listeners, it's a very small, it's an electric piano. It's got, what are they called? Tines. Yeah, the tines. Thank you. And it fits, you know, it like actually closes into a little suitcase. You can pick it up and take it with you. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it looks kind of like a guitar case almost. It's heavier. So he forms a band in college, but his father fell ill and then he had to get a job as a welder making industrial control products, which is very sexy. And the jolt of going into a factory after finishing art school made him reconsider his life direction. And so he eventually went back into music. So in 1966, he starts playing organ for a group called The Lonely Ones, which was Noel Redding's original band. Noel Redding being the bass player for Hendrix. And so The Lonely Ones stayed alive after Noel Redding left. And this is when Davies joined the band. Can we do a quick little aside here? Yeah. The Experience is an underrated name for a band. That was great. That was a good call. Oh, on Jimmy's part? Yeah. Oh, totally. So The Lonely Ones, speaking of crappy band names, The Lonely Ones (laughs) changed their name to the joint 
Just... <laughs> <laughs> they gigged for about six months in England playing soul music, but wound up in mainland Europe for about 18 months gigging at night and making music for German films, which Davies said... Germans make the worst films in the world. I apologize if we have any German listeners. That is not my statement. That's Werner Herzog is going to come after you now. Right. <laughs> Go after Richard Davies instead. But anyway, this guy named David Llewellyn was feeding them work from the German movie business. And at this point, the band is not really making much money. But Llewellyn, who's getting them all these gigs, knows a Dutch millionaire living in Switzerland. All right. So this is where the benefactor kind of comes in. So Dave talks to this mystery millionaire and they hear nothing from him for about three months. But then Mr. Moneybags eventually reaches out and says that he's interested in seeing the joint. So the Dutch millionaire, a guy named Stanley August Miesages, I think is maybe how you say it, but they refer to him as Sam because that is the initials of the name Sam. So we'll call him Sam from this point on. So he starts working with this band, The Joint. Now, Sam has ideas. His big idea is that he wants to have a pop band who does classical themes in a pop style. It's kind of what progressive rock is, right? All right, that's, that's a good point. I was wondering if this is like the start of sampling as well. Was that a pun? Was that an attempt at a pun, Adam? I think it was, but it... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's definitely getting cut. So he starts feeding the joint money and trying to get them to produce some music, but it's not really living up to what he wanted. So he approaches Rick Davies separately and says that he'd be willing to sponsor Rick, but he has to leave the joint and start a new band. Rick Davies meets up with Sam and they start writing music. Sam is a pretty extravagant, kind of a, an odd guy. He has all these ideas, like he wanted to send Rick around the world with recording equipment and, you know, create an album called Rick Around the World in 80 Tunes where he'd go to Afghanistan and play music and then he'd go to India oh, and play music. So he could make MIA's Kala. Right. <laughs> this is a callback to an episode over over 100 episodes ago. But listen, well Phil, done. There's a, we heard a little benefactor pro tip in there. If you really want to sow some chaos, you find a band that you don't even like and then you just pull one guy out of that band and be like, oh. we're going to make you a star, buddy. Yeah, okay, good that, is, good. that is a power move right there. It's classic abusive boyfriend behavior. <laughs> you isolate so that you can control. <laughs> All of Sam's ideas are terrible. Rick goes back to London and starts auditioning other musicians for a band that would ultimately become Supertramp. So he puts an advertisement in a weekly music magazine in England called Melody Maker. The advertisement said that there was a genuine opportunity. So... Davies has these auditions, and he forms a band called Daddy. The true takeaway from that brief stint as Daddy was meeting Roger Hodgson, the other half of our, our musical duo that makes up Supertramp. He's got some names that he works through here, man. The Joint. Oh, yeah, there, there's Daddy, a lot of people. Supertramp. Are there any other names on this list? So far, it was The Joint, Daddy, Supertramp, and then I, I think those are the main ones. I have, a, I have another band coming up. All right, so let's touch a little bit on Roger Hodgson, who started playing guitar at around 13 on a guitar that his mother had stolen during a divorce. So there was some good energy in that instrument. But he played both guitar and piano and started with a group called People Like Us, which didn't do much. No daddy. Not as creepy as daddy. So Hodgson also responds to this classified along with a couple hundred other musicians. But he said he was chosen because of the high register of his voice and his guitar chops, which kind of a little tangent here. I like their two voices together. 
Davies has a bit of a Kermit thing going on. Hodgson has this high thing, but they're, they kind of work well together in an odd way because neither one of them is necessarily super pleasant, but together, I think they're a nice mesh. Not quite Lennon and McCartney. No. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty good. Hodgson and Davies get together. They start writing music and it's early on that they start to discover some differences in, in the songwriting and the, the way they approach the process. And it ultimately helped define the sound of Supertramp was them kind of butting heads. And ultimately, it was a competition with each other. Rick Davies is five years older than Hodgson. So at the time of the release of the first album, that one of those psychedelic albums was called Supertramp. Davies is about 26 and Hodgson is about 20. And like I said, they're writing songs competing with each other, which is kind of a Lennon-McCartney thing as well. I think that's a good thing to have that fuel that can help bands, at least for a time. So they released that first album called Supertramp in 1970. It's decent. If, if you're bored, you have absolutely nothing else to do. Give it a listen, just for some context, maybe. I've seen some reviews that pan it, but I thought from the 1970s, it was, it was decent. I did see that there was a bit of a lack of direction in that. Not surprising being the first album out of the gate there. One of the problems, which, speaking of Lennon and McCartney, Davies later remarked that they were super green in the studio and insisted that they didn't need a producer because in 1970, that's what Paul McCartney was doing. He didn't have a producer. We don't need a producer. 1970, Paul McCartney? You think they might have skipped a couple steps there? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> hey, we're the Beatles, right? We don't need this. Okay. What's funny about that is like it suggests that dude had even been in the studio much like these things where this was rarefied gear, right? To even yeah. have access to in 60s, you know, as recently as 66, 67, right? Who could you name other than Paul McCartney in 1970 who had more time in high-end studios to play around? Yeah, yeah, sure. So that first album doesn't really go anywhere. They considered it a commercial flop. Sam is not exactly thrilled because I think he wanted to make some money off this investment. So now it's 1971, the band still being financed by Sam. So they got a new lineup with only Davies and Hodgson remaining from the first album. So album two, kind of more of the same, doesn't really go very far. That album was called Indelibly Stamped. It was released in June of 71 in both the U.S. and the U.K. Notably, Indelibly Stamped sells even less than their first album. And Sam decides to stop funding them in October of 1972. The band splits except for Rick Davies and Roger Hodgson. And even though Sam backed out, they still had support from A&M Records, who they had worked on with the first two albums. And Hodgson noted that when we started, we had everything. All the equipment we wanted, we traveled in a 42-seater coach bus with beds in the back. And when Sam left, the money left and our equipment broke. <laughs> Wow. And it was like at that point that they had to stop coasting. Yeah. Because you can imagine how it is. If you know, if, if you don't have to work for your money, and you're not necessarily going to produce the best stuff. Wait, sorry. Did I miss it? Do we know why Sam left? He was just over it? He was over it. Yeah. They, just two flops. And he was like, okay, this is just isn't working out. I think he wanted to see some money. So I don't think it was necessarily as selfless as Pip's benefactor and Great Expectations. I think this guy wanted a little a little scratch in return and got none of it. So how'd they bankroll this third record? With the help of AM. So they didn't necessarily have as much money as Sam was pumping into them, but AM definitely believed in the project. So that brings us up to this album. So 1974's Crime of the Century. You mean how they robbed Sam all that money? <laughs> 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 <Nah>. <laughs> 
Just kidding. <laughs> but before we dive into crime of the century, let's hit by the numbers. All right, we've got a couple numbers here. So 11, the number of studio albums from Supertramp released between 1970 and 2002, which I was surprised with. 11 seems high for a band that I had only heard a couple singles from. All right, 12, as in 12 a.m. The first Supertramp album was recorded only between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. because of the superstition that those were the magic hours for making music. It also happened to be rumored that both Traffic and Spooky Tooth recorded during the same window. Spooky Tooth? Spooky Tooth. Have you heard of them? God, these are the best names. I'm so glad I'm on this week. I dig that one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know Spooky Tooth, no. Spooky Tooth. They're like pretty heavy English yeah. rock. I, a lot like, like, like Iron screaming. Butterfly sort of thing? Yes. Like screaming okay. Hammond organ. Lots of loud distorted guitar. I mean, they kind of rock. Yeah, okay. Cool. I'll, I'll check that out. Also, Traffic came up a lot as I was researching these guys. They were definitely listening to Traffic and tried to model some of their stuff after their success. Seven, the number of years it took for Supertramp's debut album to reach the U.S. So that Whoa. eponymous album, Supertramp, was released in 1970 and didn't make it to the U.S. until 1977, after some of these other albums took off. All right, 60,000. That is the number of English pounds that Sam, their millionaire friend, put into the band, which in today's dollars would be about 1.2 million pounds and in U.S. dollars, it's about $1.5 million that this guy pumped into the band over the course of probably three years. And that's the Super Trap Challenge. You know, how many records did they release before this record came out? Two before Crime of the Century. If you got $1.5 million and 12, let's just call it 30 tracks, like, do you think you could make a hit? Yes. In case anyone out there is listening and they're looking for an investment opportunity, I can absolutely do that. Attention, Dutch millionaires. Right. <laughs> My Venmo account will be in the episode details. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the super tramp challenge. <laughs> Give me $1.5 million. <laughs> but I think, it, I don't think it was just the studio money. I think that he was funding them to try to move around the country the whole and tour the whole and a tour yeah. yeah the whole thing yeah. as though they had already made it maybe the idea that fake it till you make it that he put them on a bus and he got them the best gigs and all that stuff and it just didn't cut it 400 the number of drummers that Hodgson said they auditioned over the course of 5 years of getting of getting to the 1975 that lineup makes sense all right. And the last number here is going to be 40. The number of demos that Davies and Hodgson recorded for the album. That kind of speaks to the fact wow. that after the first two albums, they were determined to find the best material and put that, I'll say maybe the best commercially viable material and put that onto the album. We're getting even closer to the formula already, though, right? So we've got 30 songs over two records. We need 40 demos. So we need 120 demos. One point, yeah, we need, you know, we need $10,000 a song. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad theory to just make more <laughs> songs and then cut the bad ones. That's, yeah. a, I mean, it's a tried and true. Like, I, I don't think people give that premise enough credit in creativity. There's like a Dylan biography where he talks about writing a song a day. He's like with Joan Baez at the time, and they're just writing songs at typewriters, like 500 songs a year. Some of them got to be good. Yeah. I mean, and right. some of them are amazing. 
Hey everybody, we'll get back to the show in less than a minute, but in that time, I have a request. If you've ever gotten any value from this podcast, whether you learned something new about your favorite band, laughed at one of our tweet-length reviews, or screamed at your podcast player for something we got wrong, please take a few seconds and leave us a rating and a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those two simple things can help spread the word about the show and help us continue to bring you our unique takes on music history, as well as all the bands you love and hate. All right, we're going to jump back into this album. So Sam has left. Rick Davies said it had significant influence on his songwriting process. No big surprise. And with Sam, he had abundant time and resources. But with no Sam, Davies had to actually get serious and focused and have a goal in mind. So A&M had not yet lost faith in the band, and a guy named Dave Margerson started managing them. But with so many band members leaving, coming in and out, Davies and Hodgson basically had to reassemble a new band all over again for this Crime of the Century album. So they fire up the audition process yet again, and they bring in a guy named Doogie Thompson on bass. At the time, they had auditioned 40 bass players in a day, and he was the only one that stuck out. He didn't say why, but he said he was the only one that they remembered. So maybe wear like a crazy colored wig to your next. Uh, a guy named Bob Siebenberg on drums, who was an American guy from L.A. and had been playing in the U.K. John Hellowell on woodwinds, keyboards, and vocals. And then they would obviously keep Davies and Hodgson in their current roles as the singers well, and on keys. Hold on, he plays brass, too. Sax? Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Hellowell does, yeah. yep. Is that considered brass? Am I off base here? No, saxophone is a woodwind because of the reed. <sighs> okay, revoke my credentials, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Although, if there's any sax players out there, let me know if I'm wrong, because I thought that's what made it a woodwind. I don't know. All right, so in order to write, compose, and rehearse the materials for the new album, A&M put them in a 17th century farm estate in Dorset, England, where they brought wives, girlfriends, pets, and they stayed there for three months writing and rehearsing the material and all those demos for this album. Sounds very Steely Danny. Again, I know their whole thing was that they just wanted to bring their whole family, just make it their life to write and focus on music. You're saying this was this is the tight budget, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where they meant, and I'm not sure how they funded this, but they, they used, I forget who it was in one of these interviews, he used the word wangle, which I had to go look up, which is to kind of like scheme your way into a situation because he said that somehow the record company wangled three months in like an old castle for them. So I don't know if they knew somebody or if, yeah, A&M just fronted them a ton of money to live like kings for three months and write music. Well, the mentality, again, has to be this is our last chance based on the record company and the backing. Or if nothing else, and this is a concept I don't feel like we cover enough, but what age is this guy at at this point? 28, 29-ish? Yeah, I believe so. In, In that zone. I mean, you're getting to a point where you've been trying for a while and you're like, I don't know if I've want to continue this life if I'm not successful. That has to be going through people's minds. It's got to be very demanding. Did we hear that Sam got something in perpetuity? Because when they eventually made a shit ton of money, did he get anything back from that? You know what? I don't know. I do know that they dedicated this album to him. Because <laughs> that's worth a lot of cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would imagine that any money that they currently make on albums one and two, again, which is did not exist. Well, maybe that's maybe that's why they're not on streaming, right? I'm just wondering what, yeah, if he, okay, he funded the albums and then anything only from those albums. I mean, that's just got to be a bummer for Sam. I'm surprised he didn't put a hit out on these guys. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> you waited till I dumped you and then you became quadruple platinum or whatever. Right. So the album itself was recorded over two months at Ramport Studios, which was owned by The Who and Trident Studios in London. And the album, again, between albums one and album three, is much more engineered, much more produced, lots of nice flourishes and finishing touches. And it was the first time that any of them had been involved in that mix-down process of riding the sliders all in the same mm -hmm. studio room. And, you know, you need 10 people to do it. And you can hear a lot of that when you listen to this album with headphones. So when you hear things moving from left channel to right channel or swelling or moving around. Hmm. When they were recording this, there were actually guys in the studio looking at each other and saying, you know, track three, go. And they'd slowly raise it up as they mixed down to the final track. So pretty cool process. And I think, Rob, you said that you and Tom had done that at one point? We did that once. I don't think, I think it was our least successful album, in, uh, creatively speaking. But yeah, we performed the mix on a board, which was challenging to say the least. Yeah, and that's what it is, a performance, right? Which kind of cool, I suppose. Computer automation is the way to go after doing it at least once. I guess it depends on how much time you have to rehearse that performance. All right, so this album is released on September 13th of 1974 on AM Records in both the US and the UK. Dreamer was the first single released with Bloody Well Right as the B-side, and what a friggin' combo. I mean, those are the two killers on this album. Those are the powerhouses on this album. Good job, whoever decided that those were going to be the single. I also wanted to make note, <laughs> in our text thread this week, I may have panned the album cover a little bit. What, what were your thoughts on the album <laughs> cover? Because I kind of thought it was a turd. It hasn't aged well. I... I... <laughs> <laughs> It just looks underbaked. It looks like it's adjacent to an idea that might be good, but it's not there at all. It seems lazy. Yeah, it felt like a Doctor Who, like, like, like I don't know, trailer or something like that. But the art director for A&M who worked on this had a couple iterations. The first iteration he had after just reading the lyrics but not listening to the music was a teddy bear lying dead in an alley, stabbed with its entrails all spread about and like wow. laying in a pool of blood. And I was like, wow, you got that from these lyrics? I don't know. It just didn't seem that dark to me. Maybe, like maybe he was going through something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> said more about the artist than, yeah. the, than the actual band, yeah. All right, so this, this album sells 100,000 records in the UK, a half a million in the US and one million in Canada. This is early on this. So at this point, it has gone platinum multiple times. And Rob, you had mentioned something about kind of pseudo prog rock. Robert Criscow, our friend over at the Village Voice, gave it an enthusiastic meh when he said, <laughs> straight ahead art rock, queen with preening, and yes, without the pianistics and meter shifts. <laughs> Which well, I mean, when you put it that way, it's pretty fair. Yeah, it's just cruel. Yeah, it's it's kind of kind of on the nose there, <laughs> yeah, Robert. Yeah. Well done. All right, gents, you ready to dive into some tunes on this bad boy? Let's do this. Did he call them pianistics? Th that's that was Robert's word. Yes, pianistics. I don't think I've ever heard that word. Could be another <laughs> band name. Maybe the joint failed and they became the pianistics. All right, so let's jump back into the track that we rolled at the top of the episode and jump back into Dreamer. Yeah, no. Well, you know you have 
Yeah, so I'm I'm a little surprised. This is the first single, to be honest with you. I think it's pretty weird. And I kind of like the second half of the song a lot better than the first half. It's a little smacking me in the face in, in the first half, melodically and otherwise. But when they finally start getting into that harmony stack, I think that's really cool. I don't know if that's just Hodgson layered on top of himself multiple times, like kind of in the chorus section. Yeah, that sounded cool. I really dug the the weird hard band. <laughs> Take a drink, bouncing between the ear the earphones. I could be someone. Yes, the call and response. The call and response, yeah. It's really well done. Again, I'm picturing the guys in the studio doing the performance of, of the mix, and they did it really well. Yeah, it it's, cool. I mean, it's a really ambitious song in general. Like, it's very interesting. I was curious, like, where it was in relation to, like, Bohemian Rhapsody. Not that it's quite, like, as ambitious as that, but, I mean, it's definitely a really interesting pop song. And then it, and then it sort of resolves into that key change. I will say though, there's something about it where like, I I do like the song, but like, especially at the beginning, I just, I can't not hear Dana Carvey chopping broccoli. You know what I mean? Right, right. (laughs) I know what you mean. You know, I think for me, the beginning just read as lots of cocaine. Like he's just hitting that thing so hard. Well, well, Hodgson wrote this when he was 19, about five years prior to recording this. So he had a demo sitting around for years before they actually put it together for this album. Right. I heard him say that. And I heard him say that they liked the demo so much, but and they spent a lot of time in the studio trying to recreate it. Like it started to go other directions that were more produced and had more drums in them. And ultimately it didn't stack up against the original demo that he had made. So they like pulled it back and pulled a bunch of stuff out. My note was that they cram a lot into three minutes and 33 seconds, which is also yeah. a fun number that the the song is actually three minutes and 33 seconds. I don't know if that was deliberate, but good on you. But they've got the Wurlitzer, there's a Celeste, there's an organ that comes in and does a counter melody. The drums don't kick in for like half the song. They, they really, I feel like they defined that. I, I know we've talked prog rock, but I feel like art. This song almost falls into the art pop world, mm-hmm. just because of how peppy it is. Yeah. yeah, this gave me hard sparks vibes in a positive way. I can't say it, it wasn't even close to my favorite song in the record, but it's successful. It was odd too to consider this pop music because I watched a video of them performing this on top of the pops, and I've seen other top of the pops performances. If you look at the Sparks performance for Top of the Pops. They played, the song is super weird, but people are in seats watching it, right? And the camera's moving around and it's on them. For this performance of Dreamer on Top of the Pops, they had like the teeny boppers against the stage trying to dance to this. And it's really awkward (laughs) because you can't dance to this. And the kids are looking around like, what did the director tell us to do? What are we supposed to do? Dance real fast. Right, exactly. <laughs> to this, it's just it's just very one of those very odd '70s musical moments. And this song peaked at 13 on the UK charts for those of you playing at home. All right, let's move this train along to I think this might be my favorite track on the album. This is Rudy.
mentioned bohemian rhapsody i almost feel like this yeah. is in that realm this is a bit of a it's a journey yeah thank you yes that is a great word for it it is a journey i wrote it goes from boz Skaggs to king crimson to yes how could i not like this but i would say compared to some of those other bands that even that i just referenced there's a smoothness to a lot of what they do and a grooviness and that's why some of this this track in particular made me think of yacht rock you know, it's that electric piano, but it's it is kind of vibey, and they don't hit you over the head with the musicality as much as some other bands do. And so, even when I was just referencing King Crimson, and yes, I was thinking of you know they tend to be very angular in their constructions and really let you know when they're going to change meter or change key or you know do an atonal section. I, I was referring to like other parts of the music. You know, yes, with the high vocals, for instance, and King Crimson with the the kind of mid-70s, super vibey, melodic, electric piano stuff. You know, I don't know that I would have thought of this comparison, but there's almost like a Hall and Oates-ness to Super Tramp, in the, not in the sound, but in the like the accessibility level. Rob, you're saying like they don't hit you over the head with the musicality, but it, I mean, it's definitely fully there, right? Yeah. Unlike some of these other bands that, you know, they're going to blast you with solos or, as you said, I think, you know, atonal, you know, sort of angular I think of it like they worked really hard to make the transitions, even the musically strange ones, feel smooth. Mm -hmm. It just takes work and a certain amount of finesse. And yeah, perhaps you're right. Hollow Notes is maybe a good touchstone for stuff like that. They could have very easily fallen into trying to be too clever for their own good in this song, but I think they skirted that line quite nicely. And kind of robbed to your point, it's almost like prog rock light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for if you, you your first intro to prog rock, this would be a great starting point. Now that said, I don't find it poppy. Really, I really kind of almost any of the record is like, there's nothing all that catchy. I'm not surprised they didn't have bigger hits on this. It's not, especially compared to their later stuff, where I think they lean into oh, it. Oh yeah, but that's yeah. but with that said, it is extremely palatable if you like this kind of music. I almost felt like there was a little hint of like disco near mm -hmm. the end as sure. well. You get to like five-ish minutes, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, there was like a wah-wah guitar and big strings that... Yeah, it's like a disco rock vibe for sure. It's yes. Like yeah. yeah, it's almost like, a, I don't know, maybe like something you would have caught on like JC Superstar or something. Oh, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> 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 they they added some nice synth in this song as well. There's this choppy piano part at around 140 where they hint at a little bit of a synth in there. Again, they're not clubbing you over the head with it. You know, this song is over seven minutes, but I thought it was pretty badass. Let's move on to our next song. This is kind of like the rockin' tune. This was the B-side of Dreamer. This is Bloody Well Right.
Yeah, this one rocks. I dig it. Still not my favorite. We actually skipped over my favorite on the focus list, which was the opener, School. I thought that was kind of a bad yeah, Okay. But yeah, I, I dig Bloody Well Right. I think it's a good, kind of a good indication of what the low-voiced guy, I already forgot his name again, Davies. Kerm, Kermit. Kermit. What Kermit can do <laughs> when in his tunes, you know, if, if they have those kind of two. I think later they get a little better at mixing their voices together because I feel like Hodgson only comes in real briefly on some harmonies. In this one, I'm sure he's playing guitar or something. But yeah, I dig the tune for sure. Got the big hits in the beginning. Oh, yeah, that intro. Oh, yeah. The words don't come in for a minute and 38. And those hits are so good. They're just perfectly timed. And it's one of those, like, I enjoy listening to the intro. So much. <laughs> totally. Like, Rob, you had, like, some, like, band list for the last tune, Rudy. This song goes from Steely Dan to Chicago to Pink Floyd in one minute and 38 <sighs> seconds. You know, it yeah. really does, like, yes. just blow, like, right through, like, Hey 19 into any Chicago song into, <laughs> I, I guess I would say, Have a Cigar. Yeah, I hear you. At the same time, when I was listening to that intro, I was simultaneously enjoying it. And also, in the back of my head, I couldn't shake this thought. That the punks, the Sid Viciouses and Johnny Rottens of the world, this is what they were rebelling against. This is what they would absolutely hate with all their being. <laughs> this kind of just vamping <laughs> on the Wurlitzer, you know? This just like represents everything about the 70s that the punks, I think, rebelled against. And everything I love. But yes, accurate. Noodle on the Wurlitzer for a little bit. This is about as heavy as Supertramp gets as well. So if you listen to Bloody Well Right and you think that you're going to be getting a heavy rock band and anything else downstream, you're, you're going to be very disappointed because this is this is probably the peak rockness of them. I thought it was very cool. The intro is major, and when the lyrics start, it goes minor and changes key. Very cool motion in the song. Yeah, it definitely, I definitely noticed the, the sort of like uh, modal dark thing that happens for sure. Like definitely opens major. And I mean, the guy really just shreds that key solo. It's really, it's fantastic. Nobody's really a virtuoso, but they're all good. They're all solid musicians. And I yeah. thought that this song really featured everybody really well. I mean, the bass is really good in this too. Just some of the the, the noodles that he's doing and and the, you know, not not landing on the root kind of stuff. It was it's Noodle City for sure, but I actually sure. and I felt this throughout the record that although there's no virtuosos, they all know where they're at. And so they keep it tasteful. They keep it at their own appropriate level and they get their licks in you know they kind of know their limitations and i think that itself is a strength yeah I, I mean i think i like this song like you know like if i went to a fish show and they played this song i'd be like yeah this is cool you know <laughs> seems like a fish song you know it's the <laughs> highest praise phil can muster <laughs> it would be cool if fish covered this at a show all right well that's it for us i mean that's pretty much your only chance of seeing it live so <laughs> yeah let's go Nobody else is going to be... The Foo Fighters are not going to be covering this. Unlikely. Although that would be badass. All right, well, we're going to move it along here to the last song on our focus list. And this is a song that grew on me a bit. I think I noted when I sent out the focus list that this was a bit anticlimactic, but I want to get your opinions. This is Crime of the Century.
I think mood-wise, it is an appropriate ender. It's a little odd, I agree, to put the title track at the end of the record, but it's approximately the, the mood of a song that I would put at the end. My one complaint would be that the end specifically of this track is boring, right? And so we've, we've already referenced Pink Floyd a couple times. This gave me another Pink Floyd vocal approach plus the sax. The problem is that the sax solo takes us out and it's it's kind of lame. It's pretty three note. And I think maybe that's why I said it was anticlimactic. Because you just kind of left with a meh, as, as Robert Criscale said. Mm, meh. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like, you know, if you're hell-bent on putting this song on the record, last is the right place for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's simultaneously incredibly dramatic and boring, you know? And it's a weird... Rob, I didn't think I didn't think about the fact that the sax solo was lame. Like, you know, I didn't I didn't think about it as compared to maybe a like a you know, a great gig in the sky, sort of like, you know. It's passable. I'm just saying in context of the record. You're gonna end the record with it. It's gonna kinda I think it goes to a fade mm-hmm. out even. It does. But yeah. for the last sixty seconds or so, the sax really just isn't doing much. I just feel like that was a missed opportunity. The actual song is really only about a minute and 30 seconds. And I feel like it ends with that piano part. And then that's just them where they pick up that kind of, it might even just be two chords of them just going back and forth and then everybody noodling out. And they're trying to make it sound big. And they they did this on another song as well. It might have been Asylum, where they went the Pink Floyd route. But man, if you don't have a compelling chord pattern, it doesn't matter how big you make it. It doesn't sound big. And the reason why I think a lot of those Pink Floyd ones work so well is that A, they're big, but it's a very compelling chord progression. Mm-hmm. And those two things make it feel epic. This feels like they were trying to make too simple and a boring chord progression sound really big, and it just didn't work. It's like the John Tesh thing where you have like something really simple. No matter how many orchestral elements you add, it's not that interesting. <laughs> Sorry, John Tesh. Although he did write the NBA song, right? Yeah. So that's cool. He's got some. Is John Tesh on the list anywhere? All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. We're at the end of our focus list here. So what we do every week is we throw things around the studio and ask our crew whether or not you actually need to hear this before you die. So let's throw it over to Rob first. Guys, I'm really conflicted about this one, but I did enjoy the record. I think that for fans of Prague and the 70s and things like Dark Side of the Moon, this is a footnote, but a fun listen. It gave me more context on a very popular band. And you're definitely not going to hear this unless you go out of your way to hear it. That said, I don't really think it's essential in terms of the musical canon, the influences it spawned. You're not going to get caught off guard if someone goes deep in a musical conversation on Supertramp and you go, yeah, actually, I haven't I haven't heard Crime of the Century. You're not going to get called out. So I think you're safe. <laughs> it's a no for me. 
Phil. I loved listening to this this week. I, I was sort of familiar with this record. It had been a very long time since I had listened to it. I definitely love Dreamer. I definitely love Bloody Well Right. Um, and overall, just sort of like love the Super Tramp sound. That said, I mean, Rob, I think you said it well, like sort of like musical canon, the influence. Like, I think the world would have gone on without Super Tramp. I'm also going to say that, like, I just think Breakfast in America is more fun. So if you're going to listen to Super Tramp, you'll just have more fun. So I'm also going to pass. Although I do like this record and probably will listen to it again soon. I know we're going to give it to Adam shortly, but, you know, we didn't really address why is this on there not Breakfast in America. Because Breakfast in America is chock full of hits. In case you guys don't know, audience, you know, you do know like four songs on that record. Logical Song, yeah. Goodbye Stranger, Breakfast in America, Take the Long Way Home. All very recognizable. Who, who knows why it was actually chosen? But my argument for why it would be the album to put on was that this is where they found and defined their sound. So you've got a band that started two albums fell by the wayside with a sound that didn't work for them. And it was this sound that they discovered on their third album that they then carried on. So this is like the, again, the origin story for the sound of the band, even though Breakfast in America is technically the commercial success. Listen, I don't, I'm not a super tramp aficionado by any means, but what it looks like to me is they cemented something on this record. It was cool. It was edgy. It was hip. And then on the very next record, the opening track is give a little bit. And that became a mega hit. And they're like, we should do more of this. The songs on Breakfast America, while great, and while they have some elements of these other tracks, they don't actually sound like the, the same band to me very much. Just an opinion. Okay. Sorry, Adam. I'll now yield the floor to you. <laughs> well, no. So it it's a yes for me, but in the similar vein of what I feel the Grateful Dead did, which was they had a bunch of albums prior to their defining album, which was going to be Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. American Beauty. Thank you. And that was kind of where the Grateful Dead, as we know them, started. So this, in my mind, is where Super Tramp started. And then eight albums later, they, they continued the sound. So it's a yes for me, but we've got two no's, one yes. So I'm sorry, Super Tramp. Crime of the Century is a no you guys will survive, I'm sure. God, I'm already regretting uh, my decision. Can we go? Can we open <laughs> the scrolls again? <laughs> hey, listen. You you control them. You tell listen, me. Listen, listen. You will be cooler if Super Tramp comes up at a party and you get to reference it. You will <laughs> sound cooler. Absolutely. I just want to make that clear. But I'll I'll stick with my vote. All right, all right. The scrolls have been locked. But now what we're gonna do is we're gonna throw it over to Rob, who's got his hand in the mailbag. Ah, yes, the mailbag. Thanks so much, Adam. We're we're always a little behind on the mailbag, but I got a couple for you. So friend Sam writes, hi, complainers. A couple weeks ago, I was searching Spotify for spiritualized related content, oh, and God. your podcast came up. Uh-oh. Intrigued by the concept, <laughs> I indulged. But when I realized within minutes that none of y'all were into it, my initial reaction was, oh, boy. I got to say, though. <laughs> As a spiritualized mega fan, just pause and take that sentence in. (laughs) I still wouldn't consider this album among the 1001 someone should hear before they die. So I understand your unanimous no vote here. But what struck me was how much y'all seem to hate this album. Is it really that overrated? (laughs) 
it seems like it would not even make everyone's million and one albums. <laughs> but even so, I found this introduction to the podcast to be consistently hilarious and clever. So I've been tuning in, catching up on episodes that I really love, like American Beauty and the Velvet Underground one. Keep up the stellar content. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you. Do you have anything to say for yourself for the spiritualized super fan, Adam? I will agree that if it was a list of one million and one albums, yes, you can throw it on there. <laughs> I, I stand by the fact that when I saw them live, he didn't face he didn't face the audience and that I could never I could never support him after that. <laughs> but okay, fair fair enough. We were I don't even remember the record now. It all goes by so fast, guys. Last mailbag I want to read. Mark from Manchester. And you can just imagine, I can't do a Mancunian accent, but you can imagine it in your heads. Just discovered your podcast, catching up on the many, many episodes. Sounds like a subtle dig on how long we've been around, maybe. It's really informative and insightful, so thanks for the time and effort you put into it. It's on my daily play on my journey to work now. I'm really surprised how UK-centric the 1001 Albums list is. There's a few that haven't been on yet that I know could be debatable from an American perspective, but have a huge cultural footprint in the UK. So I could understand if you get confused about some inclusions. Footnote, except fun, love, and criminals. They were huge over here, and I could never understand why. <laughs> Thank you for that, Mark. You're already in our good graces. Thank you. He says, Huey Morgan from the Fun, Love, and Criminals now has a radio show on BBC here, and he's treated like some kind of music guru shaking his head. Okay. <clears throat> he points out a couple things. He says, there's a few things I've noticed might've been picked up on before. To be honest, Mark, I can't even remember if we've mentioned these before, but referencing the Beatles, let it be. You misheard them when they discussed the middle A that they keep discussing. They're referring to the middle eight of the song. That's the, the bridge of right. the song. I feel like we talked about that offline, but maybe it didn't come up on the show. That little correction of what Paul McCartney's talking about in the Get Back documentary. Okay, another uh, perhaps more interesting anecdote. Super Furry Animals. We did Rings Around the World, recall. He says, you referred to Gruff Reese as a Welsh nationalist. This is so far from the truth. While he and the Super Furries do promote the Welsh language and are proud of it, they are not nationalistic at all. In fact, there's a famous Welsh music festival, and if you perform there, you're only allowed to sing in Welsh and they banned this, the super furry animals from singing any of their English songs. And in protest, they played it and played only their English songs. Point is, they're not Welsh nationalists. So in closing, thanks for your hard work. And thanks for getting me to listen to The Grateful Dead. I love that album now. Absolutely no cultural footprint in the UK. Lastly, fuck Eric Clapton. <laughs> And coming from a Brit as well. So, all right. We love, love, love when y'all write in. We really do. We read every single one. We learn from you guys. We only have so much time. We try to do our best with research. As you can see, we're, we're reading books every week. We're doing our best. But as always, the audience and people who have been following these bands for way longer, you guys know a lot more. So please, please, please continue to write us in. Tell us what we got wrong. Give us additional context and fun stories. The email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. Awesome. And don't forget as well, we've got some other social media stuff on Instagram. You can find us at 1001albumcomplaints as well as The Chop Unlimited, which has everybody's music and, and other various projects there as well. So check those out. I'm going to throw it back over to Rob. He's got the Albinator this week to give us our homework assignment. Oh, yes. The Albinator. It's been shipped over to my place. We're going to 
take a look, give it a quick spin to see what we'll be listening to next week. Without further ado, does that run on regular electric or is it more like washing machine electric? Have I asked this before? It's a diesel engine, actually. It's I have a to diesel go. engine. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite a process. Okay, without further ado, let's get our homework for next week. Drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The artist is Sly and the Family Stone, and the album is called Stand! Exclamation mark. Nice. I don't know that I know this one. I don't know this I one either. I had a Sly and the Family Stone compilation many, many years ago, so I feel reasonably familiar with their hits. But yeah, I'm excited to dive in. Excellent. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. You've got your homework assignment. Sly and the Family Stone, the album is Stand. Listen to it in preparation for next week. That's going to do it here for us today at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Boosh. 